0: Hi, everybody. Raghu Marcus. I'm back with Ramdas here and now. And uh, welcome to this new episode, which I'm going to uh, introduce in a minute. I just want to say, give a thanks out there, a call out, and a thanks to 1440 Multiversity, who's been helping us in the last month in terms of sponsorship and support. And uh, as I said, uh, I think I said it the last time uh, when I actually talked with Ram Das live. Um, our values are so aligned; it's really a pleasure to have them with us. And and please go to their website. You can get the link uh, off the uh, the show notes page on beherenownetwork.com/slash here and now. And uh, just see, you know, the schedule that they have of these amazing weekends with just uh, fantastic teachers. So, fourteen forty, multiversity, a great new uh, venue, a new place to get more information on how to get our lives more in order, shall we say? And uh, also, I want to mention that uh, our uh, we had a couple of retreats in Ojai. Uh, California, which uh, has, has, as everyone knows, I'm sure, gone through quite a trauma with the uh, fires in that area. Fortunately, uh, although there was some damage and some uh, houses lost and perhaps businesses, I'm not positive, uh, the extent of it, uh, most of Ojai is uh, intact, and uh, I'm hoping the same for uh, the... uh, the town's on the way to Santa Barbara, which is uh, still, um, people are still frightened, and we should say some prayers there as well. But uh, we did two retreats, uh, Ramdas immersion retreats in Ojai this year, uh, one in February and one in August, and we're doing another one March 8th through 12th. And we, we of course, will have Ramdas uh, piped in by Skype to teach. And we will have Mirabai Bush, our longtime uh, teacher at the retreats in Maui, and someone uh, who's very close to Ram Dass and I. Uh, and we met, of course, in India with Neem Karoli Baba, and she'll be there guiding the, uh, the Dharma talks and discussions and breakout groups around uh, some of the different topics. You'll be able to find that uh, just going to... Uh, Ramdas.org slash events, and you'll see that event up there and some of the details of that. And Saraswati, my beautiful wife, she'll be doing the yoga and some of the yoga philosophy talks, as well as our own Nina Rao from Das's posse will be doing the kirtan in the evening and, and some special appearances I might even make it out there, we'll see. So, Ohi March 8th through 12th. And while we're talking about good stuff that's coming, uh is going to be a quite uh full for us in terms of all of the different projects that we have going. We have a wonderful book coming out, new book from Ramdas and Mirabai, actually, um called Walking Each Other Home around love and death and uh a weighty subject that'll be out in September. We're going to have some fantastic courses next year, and uh, I'll just tell you about the one that's coming out in January, which is going to be really apropos after the holiday season, uh, where we many of us spend time with our families. And as Ramdas said, if you really want to find out where you're at, go to spend the weekend with your family, and. Uh, this one is called Transforming Difficult Emotions. So, boy, we'll have an opportunity to do that. And there'll be a, uh, a, a free webinar, free call, that uh, not call, but uh, an evening uh, that uh, will be announced just, uh, I believe it's January 18th. But you check in, make sure you're on Ramdas.org mailing list. This course is being released by the SHIFT Network. Uh, it's a comprehensive four week course uh, around uh, difficult emotions and how to transform uh them yourself and uh it's pretty wonderful so that's it those are all these are the uh the commercials for uh our program today <laughs> uh so anyhow, I found this talk is actually somebody sent this in to us. And I, I got it uh, digitized, and I thought, "Wow, this is exactly when I met Ramdas." I wonder if I was at this talk, which is early nineteen seventy, I believe. Uh, this is when the talk, and I believe that's just exactly around the time I met him. It's around. It's he starts out talking about dualism versus non-dualism, which is an interesting subject, and. Um, he has a beautiful little quote to start off with. i just read it to you. you're going to hear him, but I loved it so much, I can't avoid just repeating it. And by the way, you could repeat some of these, these kinds of quotes. Uh, this one came from uh, a Chinese patriarch. Allegiance to the void implies denial of its voidness. The more you think about it, the more you, th- the further, wait, the more you talk about it, the more you think about it, the further from it you go. Stop talking, stop thinking, and there is nothing you will not understand. So this uh, its such a fantastic quote. You could have this read to you about a million times and it would you'd come down with different uh, meanings or further depths of it. Uh and Ram Das this is, a, so the beginning of this, and I left some of this in, and we'll see, you can write to me and say, are you out of your mind, this old recording? Uh, you're putting in this chant thing, and, you know, and I won't do it again. But I loved it because it was part of what I experienced back then myself, and, you know, that's where I'm at, just sharing what it is that, uh, what it is that I got. So there's this beautiful Sri Ram, J Ram, J Ram Om, that Ramdas did, so you know that the, the tambura, that stringed Indian instrument, the drone-stringed instrument, is a little uh, because of the uh, the record. And we were talking about you know, you know five decades ago, whatever the hell it is, a long time ago. So it's a little bit shaky, okay? It sound, but his voice comes through beautifully. So I thought it was well worth putting a couple of minutes. All right, well you'll let me know. Uh, if you enjoyed it or you thought uh, it was um, too old and whatever. Uh, so uh, then, um, so it's the kind of talk that Ramdas gave back then. Uh, and I, I included this. You know, a lot of the times this is just after the, you know, he came back in 67. So this is just two years uh, he had been back. And that year in 70, he went and I went back. Uh, with him, not with him, but met him in India in, at the end of 70. Uh, it's at, at this time mostly he would talk about his whole conversion from Harvard professor, psychedelic pioneer, meeting Neem Karoli Baba. but this this was not the case in this talk. He just he launched in this whole du- uh, uh, thing of dualism and non-dualism and, and some great quotes are in there that he that he used. And some wonderful stories about how people would touch his feet when he was sort of like, a, what he called himself, an overaged hippie dilettante. And, and, how, and the, the teachings he got, uh, you know, from that and how that, uh, just really cool stuff. And, um, and talked about, he said, I came back and now I'm in the holy man game. And, uh, oh, here's a great quote. I, he he said, yeah, some hippie in Nepal told him, yeah, meditation is passing the time till lunch. I, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot in there on dealing with thoughts and meditation that'll be very, very um, valuable for everybody, for us all. I mean, again, I've said this a million times and I'm sure you don't want to hear it again, but I got to say it again. I've listened, to, as you can imagine, to a gazillion talks, either live back in the day or through the work that I do now, doing these podcasts, picking out uh, content to share. And you'd think that, uh, well, it's old stuff and I've heard it before, been there, done that. But you know what? I I find myself, sometimes even if I've heard the story before, I get as involved in it as I did when I first heard it. But I'm still hearing, I mean, Ramdas is amazing. I'm still hearing stories which I heard in this talk that he gave that um, I, I didn't hear before, or I'm getting old and I forgot one of the two. But no, I still got a good memory. So I, I think that uh, Ramdas was uh, pretty diverse with all of the, the content that he shared. So this is uh, so it's got you got a little chanting, you got great stories, you got great readings of uh, from different sages, and uh, and stuff that'll just help get along day to day. On Ramdas here and now, so uh, please go to Network dot com. And you can check out, of course, all of our podcasters slash teachers from Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein. We have wonderful guest teachers like Roshi Joan Halifax. And uh, gee, I, I want to mention somebody maybe you guys haven't even checked out. He's like one of my, f- I mean, I love all these teachers. And, and I guess I love Buddhist teachers. <laughs> but Gil Fransdal. Okay, he's been on our, check him out as a guest uh, podcaster. He's fantastic. So, uh, and and do go to my own podcast, Mind Rolling, everybody. I just did a podcast, okay, and I'm tooting my horn, but I did a podcast with a man named Robert Svoboda, uh, and he wrote these incredible books on Agora. The left-hand path of God. I mean, he had a guru named Vimalananda in southern India, and, and near Mumbai or in Mumbai, and uh, the third book of this trilogy is on the law of karma, and we talked a lot about that. And Rob Robert is just has a fantastic insight, and was given incredible teachings by uh, Vimalananda. So uh, this. I, I don't think I've touted mind rolling before, but I don't think I've ever really um, pointed to a specific podcast that I've done. That's, I have to say, one of the 10 or 15, and I've done a, a lot of them. I don't know how many of them uh, that I've ever done. So go to mind rolling Robert Svoboda when you go to Be Here Now Network, and I'll see you next week. And here is Ramdas, Here and Now. And it's just called Ramdas Darshan. February, 1970.
1: thine eye be single the whole body shall be full of light that was from Matthew When mind soars in pursuit of the things conceived in space, it pursues emptiness. But when man dives deep within himself, he experiences the fullness of existence. Meher Baba. We are only that, that is, exist only in the world of relativity. The vanity of man jibes at that statement. Man is accustomed to think himself important. His ego, he likes to think, holds the attention of superhuman powers. Gods and demons carefully watch his acts and thoughts, applauding some and punishing others. In himself, man has built a sub-office of the invisible tribunal of divine judges, and there he distributes praise and blame. So says Alexandra David Neal in these secret oral teachings. Allegiance to the void implies denial of its voidness. The more you talk about it, the more you think about it, the further from it you go. Stop talking, stop thinking, and there is nothing you will not understand. Return to the root, and you will find the meaning pursue the light and you lose its source. Look inward and in a flash you will conquer the apparent and the void, all come from mistaken views. There is no need to seek truth, only stop having views. So says Seng Tsang, When the mind perceives an object, it is transformed into the shape of that object. So the mind which thinks of the divinity, which it worships, the Ishta Devata, is at length, through continued devotion, transformed into the likeness of that Devata. By allowing the devata, the god, to occupy the mind for long, it becomes as pure as the devata. This is the fundamental principle of tantric sadhana, or religious practice. There are two views, which are statements of Dualism or non-dualism is the first, a Dwightism, and dualism, Dwightism. When you realize that all talking and all thinking is dualistic, because you've got to think about something and talk about something and talk to somebody, you realize that, and when you realize that what we seek is non-dualistic, We understand the words of Teng San says, stop talking, stop thinking, and just be. It's an interesting question of what we're doing here tonight, why we're here. More words? I guess we have to be here until we don't have to be here anymore. That's the only way I can figure it. I'm the remotest idea why we're here. I mean, I can tell you game within game within game within game, but it, I don't think it has anything to do with it. I just turn out to be here, and you turn out to be here. Well, is by our being here are we getting deeper into a trap? Non-dualist said we would be. He said, "Stop talking about it and just be it." And what the dualist says is, "You use the crutch until you don't need it anyway anymore." Ramana Maharshi says. You use a stick to stir the funeral pyre, knowing full well that at the end you'll throw the stick into the fire too. certainly must be apparent to all of us that this is a sort of a middle position we're in. But how can we use this gathering as an exercise in order to help ourselves on the way? This says nothing else to do anyway. <laughs> But become enlightened. We can retain a degree of consciousness throughout this whole experience in which we see it as an experience, instead of collecting an experience. "Wow, I got so high the other night. Man. Whew. That's like a thing out there. Let's just all be here and dig this whole drama unfold. I was trying to figure out driving up Bayshore about holy men trips, because it's very heavy. I was in Los Angeles the other night, and um, the scene got very far out, and at the end of the evening in this beautiful Unitarian church, there were several hundred people standing there for eternity. We were all just zonked, and people would come up to touch my feet. Now, I go through a number of trips about that, as you might well imagine. (laughs) The first time it happened to me in, in India, when I walked around, see, when you take on a certain garb of the dhoti and so on, walk barefoot with, you know, you're a sadhu, and then it is of spiritual merit to grustas or householders to honor a sadhu, to feed him or to touch his feet or something like that. And in India, there are 10 million sadhus who are sort of like uh, dropouts. They're dropouts specifically for the purpose of serving God. Now, within such a collection of people, obviously many of them are in it because it's an easy trip. And there's a lot of impurity, obviously. But it is a major spiritual active force in a country. And it's just what the very mobile... Young monks on the path are doing in America. They're becoming these spiritual uplifters that are just going from place to place, being straight, being here. You see them thumbing everywhere around the country, and they're just, they're like, um, there's little short of being what Maya Baba dealt with as mosques. You know, those God intoxicants, you'd find one sitting in a garbage dump somewhere. He'd been sitting there for 20 years, and he just sort of kept the spiritual scene in his community cool. That was his trip. And in a way, you see these kind of seeds of spirit just sort of drifting around, light going hither and yon. And when it first happened in India that somebody touched my feet, I, um, I got very uncomfortable because I felt like a... As so I've said before, an overage age hippie, uh, explorer, you know, dilettante, whatever else you might call me. Uh, but I didn't feel like a holy man. And Bhagwan Das, my guru brother, who's very, very far out guy, he's the one from Laguna Beach. He said, well, when they do that, he's my teacher, or one of my teachers there. He's 23 or four. He said, Well, when, you, when they do that to you, you just honor them in your heart. You touch their feet in your heart. Because you can't do it there because that's not the way sadhus do the thing. Okay, so I started to do that. The other night when it started to happen again in America, you know, because it was. People understand that pran is emitted from high spiritual beings, and people go through a trip. I've gotten so high being around you, you must be really high, so I'll come touch your feet and get pran, or I want to honor you, or I love you, or whatever it is. And I dug after a while that that was like a failure on my part. Because if the thing really was working, you would turn around and touch each other's feet, or honor each other. In other words, everybody would see that it's us and that I wouldn't be in, we wouldn't start a new game of holy men. And after a number of people had done this, I was just so zonked I could hardly move because that what happens is when they do that to you they feed in all their love and energy and it just takes you out. I mean, it's like a gift of so much prime. And I was just going out and out and out and out. Once in a temple in, um, in Nanital, in India, and I was um, sitting in meditation, and it was looking out over a valley in the Himalayas. It was very beautiful, and I was quite uh, centered, and I was not very much in my body, and I suddenly experienced. These hands, my eyes were closed. I suddenly experienced these hands massaging my arms and my legs. Very strong hands. And of course, the, the thing happening to me brought me down to another state because I couldn't, uh, I wasn't harmonious with the model I had of the world that people come up and rub your legs. And I opened my eyes just a trifle. And I came down. And there were this elderly couple who had come to pay homage at the temple. And they saw the sadhu meditating, and so they came up to do this thing, which was a thing to help me with my work. And of course, it got me so high, because of the purity with which they did it, because there was no hustle, it was so pure. And so I, there's a a sequel to that story, a strange one, but a, the other side of the coin, the yin yang of it all. That on the train from uh, Bareilly to Delhi, a night train, Bhagwan Das and I had third class seats or whatever the lowest class is, where you go with your knees up to your chin, and you, you know, there are a hundred people in a room about this big, and everybody's grooving, you know, all the muscles and bones, and it's just a mass of, you know, train goes about 18 miles an hour for 10 hours. You know. And you might as well give in. See, it's the surrender to humanity, because if you fight India, it's horrible, you know, and the minute you surrender to the Divine Mother, it's, oh, wow, she just, ah, you know, and she is the mother, she's really the mother. And so I was looking forward to this scene, because I know how I have to go through all my trips about everything before I surrender into that. But I know it demands it, finally, It's a very unrelenting teacher. And um, uh, this baggage man came along and he said, Sadhus, American Sadhus, from America. He said, uh, you know, sit in carriage. There. Come, come, come. I run baggage cars. I have a whole empty baggage car. I'll give just you. Wow, that's pretty fun. Sure, man. So we go and it's a baggage car. It's got places to put bags. In, but there's a plate you can sort of stretch out on the floorboards. It's sort of like that. You know. And he says, I won't let anybody in, and when I want uh, come in and visit, I'll knock. Closes the door, and he says, I'll have freights in the next car. And he goes away, and the train starts. And uh, after a while, his knock, and we let him in, and he says, Oh, sadhus, I am so honored to have you here. And I was starting on my trip again, you know, like the, the people up in the temple. And I'm sitting there and I'm in the lotus position and I'm just sort of going with the train and going out on the train on the wheels and so on. And uh, I feel these hands on my legs massaging and I thought, oh, wow, I'm gonna get this trip again. You know, this is like so much, you know. And I really settle into it, see, I just, ah, then the hands keep going higher and higher and higher and higher and higher until I think, oh, wow, a thought form enters my head. So all I did was I just created a field in which that thought form didn't exist. I just became a statue, you know, and it really turns you off to make it with a statue, you know, it just gives nothing at all. There's just no one home, you know. So he immediately finished, you know, he lost interest and said, I can't keep this place for just you people. I've got to let many people in. And then he let in, you know, all of us again. So this happened in Los Angeles, see, there's this feet touching business, and uh, I thought, well now, this is getting a little out of hands, because I don't think we can handle all that. You know? And I sat there, it was so beautiful, and it was pure, but it was scary because of the impurity of, of my thoughts. You know? Finally, I, I guess I got to my point, and I stood up and I said, well everybody, that's showbiz. <laughs> So the latest report I got yesterday was somebody said they heard somebody say uh, oh albert oh you know he's that stand up jewish comic <laughs> Actually I'm a sit down one <laughs> Why I've been uh, become a holy man <laughs> Is because there's nothing else to do. (laughs) Why I come on like a holy man, in other words, why I play the holy man game, being the holy man and playing the holy man game are quite different. Most of everybody here is a holy man, but not everybody's playing the holy man game. It's a game with rules and rituals and you know, very stylized thing. It's like a barber or a policeman or a holy man. You know. <laughs> but the reason I play it is very much because I understand the only thing I can do is work on myself. Okay? That's the only thing I can do either for my enlightenment or for the enlightenment of any other being in the in the in form is to work on my own consciousness. And I dig that when I'm around a certain kind of consciousness that I'm uh, helped greatly. I'm opened up greatly. And that consciousness is called in India, in Sanskrit, it's called satsang, and in Buddhism it's called sangha. You know, in Buddhism you take the... the uh, you make the three statements, uh, buddham sadhanam gacchami, dharmam sadhanam gacchami sangam sadhanam gacchami That's I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in a being who is enlightened. Somebody makes it. And in Buddha consciousness I take refuge in the dharma, meaning the law or the way or the process, the method, the karma the sanskaras, that's all dharma. The laws under which you're functioning in nature and all the astral and causal planes that keep you being what you're being at this moment. That's your dharma. And I take refuge in the sangha, or the community of monks who are on the path. Now there is a stage in one's development in one's opening where you are still using methods and one of the methods this is the time when the tree is very young as Ramakrishna says and it's the time when you're surrounded you're surrounded by a fence to keep it from being broken down and that's the time when you surround yourself with beings who are who understand what you understand That's Sangha, Satsang. So I dug that by being a holy man, in the game sense, that the only people that would hang out with me would be people who were digging to be around holy men, which is a self-selecting factor. I mean, psychiatrists, for the most part, won't be around holy men, because they'll say they're nuts and they don't hang out around psychotics. Government officials, for the most part, won't hang out with holy men. (laughs) Up-and-coming young businessmen won't hang out with holy men. If you read one of the highest books that's ever been written, The Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, it's a big fat book. There was a guy by the name of M, who was a devotee of Ramakrishna's, and he had a phenomenal memory. And every day, he just dedicated years of his life to copying down everything that was said at these darshans where Ramakrishna hung out. And you watch businessmen come to Ramakrishna trying to hold on to their business man-ness. You know, their corner on the energy market on the physical plane. <laughs> and you'd see people from every walk of life. And you'd see phony, holy men coming to Ramakrishna and he was really doing them in, you know, lovingly. The other day, I was staying with Laura Huxley down in, in Los Angeles and Laura said to me, everything you're doing sounds so beautiful, but what about all the people that are really lost? I mean, what are you doing about for anybody like that? After all, everybody that comes to have darshan is somebody who's come to have darshan. That already is a self-selecting factor. And I said, well, as far as I understand light, it just spreads. And that each of us just emits whatever light we have, and it just keeps spreading through everybody it touches all the time. And everything that goes out in waves from each of us, those high beings who are here, who are feeding energy into me, that energy is coming out again for us. We're taking it out, we're taking it out, we're taking it out, and... People we will be meeting a month from tonight will be receiving the light that we are sharing at this moment. The purification just goes out like ripples on a lake. And I thought to myself, if I get highest when I'm alone, which is true, when I do the purest work, why am I sitting with other people? Why am I seeking this? Why am I creating? What kind of desires are creating this phenomenon? Since your desires are creating me, as you see me, you might see me as a... A hippie playing a role. You might see me as a holy man. You might see me as Old Dick Alpert. You might see me as Ramdas. You might see me as somebody who's been to India. You might see me as another cat who's laying out a line. Like, who knows? That's your desires. But from my desires, that's all this. I thought, why aren't I sitting in the temple in the Himalayas? What am I doing here? I can sit in the temple in the Himalayas. There's nothing keeping me, just go to the Himalayas and sit in the temple. And then I remembered sitting in the temple in the Himalayas. And I sat in the temple in the Himalayas, and I would, the way I would do it is I would, in the mornings, I would meditate to calm my mind down. I'd sit, I'd have my do all my asanas and my pranayama. First you go and you take an ice cold bath in the river, 4.30 in the morning in the dark, chanting, that's far out. And you go to the toilet and you do the whole thing, and then you come in and you light your incense and your candle at the puja table, and you you do your puja, and then you meditate and you do breathing pranayam, and then you do asanas, body hatha yoga, then tea or whatever you had. That was my addiction was tea. Then I'd sit by the river as the sun came up and look out, and then I would start to meditate. And when I'd meditate, I would do usually this method that I've talked about a lot, the method enunciated by the southern Buddhists, the Theravadas, the Hinayanas. See, so if you went to certain monasteries, you say, well, man, this is all groovy here, but this is too much of a scene. I'm going to a monastery. So you're now transported to, say, Salon, or someplace like that, and you knock on the door of a monastery, and you say, I'd like to be enlightened. And they say, come this way. And you think, aha, I'm in. Like, really, I'm in. I got one... Uh... When we got to um, Sarnath, that's where Buddha delivered his first sermon at the Deer Park, we were staying usually at hostels or at church temples. And we got to Sarnath, and there is a Tibetan Buddhist temple and a Jain temple, and there's the Indian Mahabodhi Society, and they have a hostel, but you've got to pay 50 cents a night. And then there was a Chinese Buddhist temple that was very remote feeling, awesomely remote. So, the Tibetan temple was full because the Dalai Lama was coming, because they were going to consecrate a new school. The Jain temple didn't like Westerners, because they had a lot of trouble, and they called everybody hippies. The Mahabodhi society charged. So we sat in the chaiwala, the chai stand, the tea stand, figuring out what to do next. And my guru brother said, well, go get us into the Chinese Buddhist temple. I said, but they don't take West. He said, well, go do it. So he never asked me to do anything. He always fed me and took care of me. So I figured if he wants me to do it, I guess I do it. So I walked into this very Chinese inner garden place in the temple. Awesome, huge uh, sitting stone Buddha in the temple, and that's practically all there is. And it's a huge building as high as this. And there's nothing else practically in the room. There's two Buddhas back-to-back, actually, little one. behind. And I found a man washing the floor, and I said to him, "Um, I and another American would like to stay here to study. And he says, he didn't understand. Come in this way. And he let me into a room. So you stay here. And pretty soon as I sat there, these monks started to drift into the room. They smiled, and I smiled, until there were about eight or nine of them people, monks and others from the temple. And uh, there was a big fan going around. And then this old man monk came in, and he sat down, and he motioned for a young interpreter, and he said, what does he want? So I said, well, this other fellow and I are traveling, and we would like, we're making a religious pilgrimage, and we'd like to study for two weeks, and we'd like to stay at your temple. And he looked at me, and they looked, and I didn't know what was going to happen next. And he burst out laughing. And then he got up and walked out. <laughs> and then all the other nine monks got up and walked out, and I was left there alone. I thought, well, what do you suppose just happened? I can't. <laughs> you know, I don't know what just happened. And then. Uh, fellow came along, he said, come this way. Took me to a room, opened it, said, this is the bed, this is the bathroom, and he gave me the key, and that was it. I'll tell you just, a, just another smidgen of that part of the drama, because it was so beautiful. About the middle of the night, around three in the morning, I was sort of in a sleep, half meditation, half sleep state, and I started to hear this awesome chanting. So I went to the door, and I opened the door, and it was... The sky was beautiful, the moon was full, and it was all like a... uh, all old Chinese type trees. And uh, a pagoda style roofs and all with the moon on it. And there was this chanting that was coming from somewhere else. And I snuck along by the temple till I came to the temple door, and I realized it was coming from inside the temple, and there was a candle lit in the temple. And I didn't dare look in the temple because it seemed like it was none of my business. I hadn't been invited in and maybe this was some ceremony and they didn't tell me about it. Anyway, so I just sort of sat down outside to like tune in on And it went on and on and I assumed that they've got many more people living here than I thought. They must have 30, 40 people here. And after about two hours of this absolutely beautiful chanting coming from all different spaces and so on, it stopped and out walked a little old man. And I followed him and... There was a gate in the front of the temple that was locked. It was locked until 7 in the morning. And the gate was very far out because it had the swastika on it, you know, which is the... You know. But when you look at it from one side, and you're standing there holding bars, looking through a swastika. It takes you on an interesting side trip. And <clears throat> he walked up to this huge eight foot gate. He must have been in well into his middle 60s. And I thought we'd just stand there together till the gate opened. And uh, he just climbed over the gate and walked away. <laughs> so I figured all the other 39 guys went out another way because I didn't understand the temple. So the next morning at around 3.30 or 4, I got up again, and I went in this time, I peeked. <laughs> and there was this one guy. So yeah, in one corner was a huge drum, and in another corner was a cymbal, and somewhere else were bells. And he was working with the echoes of this building. And he was just walking around chanting to different walls and different ceilings. And you knew he had been doing this, like, for maybe 30, 40 years. Every night, in the middle of the night. And it was that kind of music. I was meditating in the temple. And I was doing the rising falling. See, if you went into the temple in Salon, they'd say, come this way. And they'd take you into a room, and they'd say, you sit right here on this mat. And they'd say, please notice that right in the middle of your, below your ribcage, When you breathe, certain muscles move. So you breathe, and you see that certain muscles move. And they say, when the muscle moves, follow it. So you follow it, it goes out, and then it goes down, and it goes out, and it goes down. There are a lot of muscles in there, but one of them goes out when you breathe in, and it goes down when you breathe out, or out and in. And that one you tune in on, and every time it goes up, you think rising. And every time it goes down, you think, falling. And the man says, you understand? And you say, yes. He says, thank you. And he leaves. You came all the way to salons. And you joyously been accepted into a temple. And you've been put in a room. And you've been told to watch this muscle go up and down. And the door's been closed. And that's it. Every day, your food's left outside the door. Everybody smiles at you when they see you. Now what? Do you get enlightened? Well, I'll tell you what happened in my part of this journey. That I sat in the temple and I did rising, falling, rising, falling, rising, falling. And I would go deep into it and I would get into waves of bliss and then a thought would come up. A thought form. And the thought forms, some of them at first were very agitated little thought forms like your knee hurts, or maybe you ought to have another cup of tea before you begin, or uh, Do you think the male's here yet, or these damn flies, whatever it is, one of those little ones, thought forms, Most of them don't capture your consciousness after a while because you're used to them, you know, and they're like demons that you had visit before, and you're welcome, sit over there, you know, it's cool, have some tea, biscuits, we're all here, screw me. And you go on doing your thing, rising and falling, they don't want to interrupt you, really, I mean, they just want to create a little hassle. They just want to be known that they're present. You honor them. You don't try to stop them, you don't say, get out, I'm busy meditating. Sure, you've got a pain in your knee. Come on in. <laughs> Might as well anyway. It's going to come in. You know, <laughs> you want to. You know. <laughs> and then I'd have some of these thoughts, like. Um, I wonder what I'll do back in the United States. <laughs> now those I couldn't dismiss so easily. Those would fascinate me. See. And I'm just sitting there hanging out. I mean, one of the hippies in Kathmandu said to me that meditation passes the time to lunch. <laughs> and I was passing the time to lunch, and it was a good thing to think about. What do you do back in America? Once I was thinking about that, and in that afternoon, or I think it was that afternoon, maybe the next morning, I got a message that Maharaji wanted to see me. And I went over to see Maharaji, and I came to him, and he said, "Uh, you were in America last night. (laughs) It's like, who do you think you're kidding? I mean, you can leave your body around, but who do you think you're fooling? We know where you are. You're in America. So after a while, when you're just doing this kind of idiot's delight, this rising, falling, rising, falling, rising, falling, and you go through everything you can say to yourself, like you know, I've got a whole routine of these now. You say because they they've blown my mind so many. I run through them all. I think you know things like for this you got a Ph.D. You know. <laughs> rising. See, it is a stand-up comic routine. (laughs) Maharaji once said to me in India, he said, called me over and he whispered in my ear, you make many people laugh in America. And I said, yeah. He says, that's good. (laughs) <laughs> See? <laughs> it's a two-in-one trip. <sighs> you know, and after about two weeks, the guy comes back and he says, How are you doing? You he doing what? And he understands that you haven't yet heard the first message. (laughs) So he says, well, I'll tell you, did you notice that right below your rib cage, there are these little muscles? (laughs) He's very patient in his whatever accent it is he speaks with, you know, and he takes you through the thing. You're a Westerner after all. You you gotta understand, You, you think you gotta do something. Hmm. Now, all that that exercise does, when you do it, by the way, is it helps you burn away all the places you aren't. It helps you burn away all your desires and your attachments by noting them, bringing them into consciousness. Because what you do is you focus on one thing, which could be your breath going in and out. It could be a point of a candle flame, like two hands away from your eyebrow, out at the point equal at the height of your ajna, is a good place for it. You just sit and hang out with a candle. And there's the candle, and there's you, and you're just hanging out together. You're not saying, I am going to see Christ in the candle, or light become me, or I mean, you can do all those. Those are other trips. But the, other, the simplest one, this one of one-pointedness, is you just hang out with a the candle. There's you and the candle, and then there's all these thoughts. Did you ever see in the spring, and I know in New Hampshire it's certainly very clear, the spring all those tiny little bugs that hang around lights, millions of them. Well, those are like your thoughts. There's you and the candle and all these thoughts. But because you've got the candle as a focal point, you see the thoughts as thoughts rather than going on each one's trip. Because if you don't have any focal point at all, If you don't have any focal point at all, every time there's another stimulation, you'll just go off on that trip. And then you are at the whim of your senses and you're at the whim of your thoughts. That's like everybody's trip every day, all through life, most of the time. That's totally in the illusion. The other end of that scale, of course, is where there's nobody there, and then you're responding to every stimulus. That's when you finish. That's the no mind state. But where you still are attached, addicted to your rational mind, the game is to bring it down to one point. And then just keep hold one point, and then watch everything else do its dance. All the feelings, all the body sensations, all the... Thoughts just going by, like so much hamburger. I've got to save the world. I'm sick. Got to do hot yoga, whatever your trip is. You see it, there's another trip. You see your own desires. You see yourself creating thought forms. And you dig that thought forms determine what you see around you all the time. I mean I was looking out here before and I saw two huge eyes of my guru. You know, nose coming down. I was sort of standing right on the tip of the nose, looking into these two big eyes. Wow man, you come at last. Mm. Which level do you want? You want to focus in on the cells?
0: Mm.
1: Or you want to see the organism? Which the cells apart. and you focus on one point, and you just stay on that point, and everything just keeps drifting by until there is only that point. Now, that is the farthest you can go in dualism. It's one-pointedness. There's you seeing one point. That's on this side of the doorway. It's all within the illusion in Buddhist terms. It doesn't exist. Nothing's happened yet. Of course, in Buddhist, nothing's ever going to happen either. But nothing's happened yet, I mean. And at that point, the game gets very interesting. Because at that point, the point is to give up the place you've just been standing. The highest meditation in that direction is done by Ramana Maharshi, is given by Ramana Maharshi. And it's called vichara atma, the method of self inquiry, or who am I? It's an absolute fierce, no nonsense method of taking you gate gate paragate parasam gate bodhiswaha, taking you beyond the beyond, beyond the ocean of existence. But all you need to be able to do is be totally one pointed. Because if you can't be one-pointed in mind, you can't do any method in yoga. Hatha yoga is a joke without one-pointedness of mind. Certainly bhakti, devotion, how can you sing love songs to somebody and at the same time be wondering what time you're going to go home? I mean bhakti is totally one-pointed, it's just your beloved, that's the whole idea of bhakti yoga. So dhyana yoga, the yoga of meditation, The highest method you can use work, assuming that you are so totally committed to doing what you're about to do, that you can do it. Because there's nothing else to do, because there aren't any attachments to put you away anymore. So what Ramana Maharshi suggests is you sit down and you put the I, your I, I, I or... You can make it E-Y-E even. Put it right in the middle of your head. And then you say, I am not this form, body. And you experience the form as object and the I as subject. And then you break down the parts of the body and you do this. You say, I am not the five organs of motion. arms. I am not the arms. And you experience your arm, and you see it as an object, see it doing its thing. You see how the wrist works and the fingers. Wow, look at that. It's an exquisite mechanism, can do fantastic things. Prehensile, you get awed by the prehensile trip, you know, that we got on a while back. I'm not the arms. I'm not the legs. I'm not the tongue. And you do your tongue, and you see your tongue from eye, and see eyes here and the tongue's there. I am not the anal sphincter, it's the fourth organ of motion. You feel your anal sphincter tightening and loosening, and you see it there doing its thing, and the eye is in the middle of your head. Fifth one is I am not my genitals, and that takes many people on a our- Number of side trips with a number of demons dropping by. You experience your genitals, and you experience it from the eye in the middle of your head, and you see it as object. Then he says, "You say I am not my five organs of sense. Now you listen to your ears hearing. See? You note your ears hearing." Don't identify with your ears hearing, just note them hearing. Note your eyes seeing. Note your nose smelling. Note your tongue tasting. Note your skin feeling. I am not any of those. See, they're just doing their thing in nature. And that isn't who I am either. I'm right back here. I know where I am. Then you say, I'm not the five internal organs. I'm not digestion, and you experience the stomach digesting. I am not excretion, and you experience the intestines. I am not respiration, breathing. Circulation, blood. Perspiration, sweat. Each of these systems, you note it in your body, bring it to consciousness, see it as object, and stay in the eye in the middle of your head. And there's one more. See, the system is, I am not this body, one, then five, 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 then one. Now you're ready for the one. You're down to the place where you've gotten rid of everything else, and all there is is the eye in the middle of your head. And then you say, I am not the thought of I. I am not this thought. Which thought am I not? I am not the thought, I am not the thought. Oh, you're not that? Oh, you're not that? You're not that either. You're not that either. You've got, you've got the leverage on the system? See, every thought you think, you're not that one either. Every place you try to stand, you can't stand there either. What you've done is you put yourself out on the farthest branch and you just cut off the branch. And you see your own thoughts going by like, like news flashes on the Times Building. I am not this thought. No, not that either. You see your thoughts going by like news flashes on the Times. That's the way you should be seeing this whole scene now going down, by the way, just as stuff happening. You have to collect, it's just stuff happening. And that's what takes you through the doorway. That's what takes you from dualism to non-dualism. Because at that point, you give up the experiencer. You give up the knower who knows. See, God doesn't sit around saying, Hey man, I'm God. He just is God. He just is a consciousness. He just is manifesting. It's not laying it on anybody, it's just, is that. That's why it's reasonable to say that higher consciousness is exactly the distance from you of your next thought. See, if you think you're going to go to India to find a guru, you're going to be thinking in India just like you're thinking here. And sooner or later, somebody's going to put you in a room see, and tell you to bring your mind to one-pointedness, and they're going to leave you there till you do it. And the person that's going to do it to yourself is you. Because you dig that your out-of-control mind is just running the show all the time. So that the whole process of bringing your mind to one-pointedness becomes a central matter. Now the people that say bhakti is the only way in the Kali Yuga are saying, in order to bring your mind to one-pointedness, use the heart. Use emotions. Use love. Love is a way to generate the energy to override all the other demons and get you to one point in it. And they say, Dhyan Yoga or the yoga of mind beating mind, the Western mind can't work with it because it's too, he'll, he'll be too cute. He'll undermine it every time. Only the Westerner's heart is strong enough to override the control of the ego. When you go to try to develop the witness in yourself, the guy who sees or the gal who sees it all going down every day, all the time, that's another part of, it's like in the Gurdjieff system, self-remembering. That's also in the rational mind on this side of the of the doorway. It's part of your rational mind that's digging the rest of your rational mind. But what happens is that witness wakes up for one second and then the ego takes over the witness. If you want a whole catalogue of the way that's done, read St. John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul. It's got a whole list of them. It's got the groovy one where you've just done pranayama and you've just come into high light. See? You've just transcended your ego. And the ego pitters around behind you and pats you on the back and says, pretty good. <laughs> And you realize you have an adversary that you hadn't bargained on, you know, because every way you are, the ego's close behind. It's like Mary's little lamb. It's like your shadow. Did you ever try to beat your shadow? The ego's exquisite at taking over any game you can conceive in form, of course. It can make itself in any form. That's who your adversary is. How are you going to stab the enemy when, the, when the, the, the knife you're going to use to stab him is the enemy. And the arm you're stabbing it with is the enemy. And the thought you're desiring to stab the enemy is the enemy. Gets very heady. Krishna says in the Gita, He who thinks there is a slain or a slayer, well, one who is slain knows not me. There are so many ways that we can identify in a dualistic framework, in a devotional way, in a very high way, and get stuck, get stuck at the most exquisite causal plane. And that's what I dug was the problem with the holy man trip that it tended to play into the desire of people to create dualism. Paul Farmer, who's been traveling with me, said to me, Man, what you create is a feeling in people that you're somewhere they're not. And I said, Well, that's their problem. That is the problem of he of us who is them. That's our uncooked karma that we're still looking for it out there. Because, as I've said before, it must be obvious to everybody that everything I'm saying, you already know. All we are doing is reciting it to one another. We're talking to ourselves. All I am is the mouthpiece for us at this moment. And I'm saying what we have to say to ourselves, what I have to say to myself. Since it's only us, I guess we all have to say it to ourselves that we wouldn't be here.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening, and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.